Today is the 4th of August, and on this day in 1792, French revolutionaries met in council to decree that all places of Christian worship in France be closed. Later, the French thinker Voltaire would write confidently that Christianity would be dead within 20 years. He wrote this in the late 18th century. He said that his hand alone would destroy what it took 12 apostles to rear and that within 50 years, faith would be forgotten. This was the period known as the Enlightenment when a lot of good scientific knowledge that we depend on today was starting to emerge but that also had a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater by enthroning human reason as opposed to commitment to God. During Voltaire's own lifetime, the British Museum paid millions for Bible manuscripts while his books sold for a few francs. The disappearance of faith then, and of people of faith, has been wrongly predicted many times. And in this psalm, it's not God's enemies who are gloating over the prospect, who think they know better, who think they're enlightened, who think they've outgrown faith. But God's king, David, who's worrying about it. And seeing as a result a lack of moral, a lack of accountability, a lack of morality, an increase in social injustice. In Psalm 11, David asked, what can the righteous do? And here he's very blatantly shouting for help. So the Bible tells us that this is one of David's psalms, but it doesn't give us a context for it in his life other than that. There's no superscription like there is with some other psalms. So we don't know if this is a point where he's in any physical danger as he was when he was running from Absalom or Saul. But what we see him expressing is despair in verse 1, that no one is faithful. The godly man ceases. The Hebrew root word here reinforces that it's faithfulness to God, not just to David, that's meant here. And because divine truth is vanishing, so here is human truth. In verse 2, people are lying and deceiving with flattery. In verse 4, they are arrogant about the power of their tongues and feel themselves to be accountable to nobody as they ask, who is our master? Or as another version of the NIV puts it, who is Lord over me? In verse 5, we see the implication that they're oppressing the needy. And finally, in verse 8, the wicked strut about while humanity (coughs) honours what is vile. What does this look like in our culture? Can we see around us an increase in lawlessness? Are laws departing from God's truth? That the more a culture proclaims itself to be liberal, the the less liberal it sometimes actually is. The way that standing on your faith becomes progressively more and more difficult. And the thing is, there's no hint here that these are foreign armies. These are Israelites, God's people, 
departing from truth. In a culture where the oppression is spiritual as much as physical or political. So how is David responding to this? What he's not doing is casting in his lot with those who seek to disregard God, glorify themselves, glorify their own words, their own reason. He's firm in what he believes, not buckling under pressure or listening to that nagging voice that might be whispering to him how much easier life would be if he did. What he does do is take it to God. In verse 3, he prays fervently against the oppression he sees around him and therefore for his people. He prays for flattering lips and boastful tongues to be silenced. The word picture in the Hebrew is slightly like a tree cut down and a lot of translations use the word cut off, which normally means killed. But in the Hebrew root language, it also carries a sense of pruning, of God showing people where they're going wrong. So, though in this situation, David might be fearing for his own safety as well as that of others, his cry for help here is foremostly a cry for God's truth to be preserved and to stem the lack of integrity and accountability that results when it's not. Some commentators feel that despite the lack of a superscription, this psalm comes later in David's life and so it may be that it's set after the incident with Bathsheba. We remember that story. David sees this woman, takes her, adultery, the subsequent murder of her husband, and his final confrontation over it with the prophet Nathan. And if that is the case, perhaps David has learnt that he needs truthful courtiers. If you've ever read or seen Shakespeare's King Lear, you might remember the opening scene where the king, feeling his age, wanting to be rid of the burdens of power, challenges his children to win a third each of his kingdom by answering a bizarre and weird question that's obviously only going to bring out the kind of insincere flattery that David talks about here. What he asked them is this. Which of you loves me most? Whoever says they loves me the most gets the biggest share of the kingdom. You can see where this is going, can't you? Two of his daughters who turn out eventually to be lustful and murderous tyrants make gushing speeches about how this retarded old king who's losing the plot, losing his grip on reality, is the light of their eyes, floats their boat, rocks their world. And the third, who's the only true daughter, as it turns out, is banished for seeking to offer a more pragmatic and truthful answer. A faithful minister 
is also banished for trying to warn the king of the madness that he's creating. It often remains true in today's world, doesn't it, that political leaders are intolerant of criticism. A certain British ambassador to America recently had cause to discover this. David doesn't want to be this sort of leader. He doesn't want that sort of people. He wants his people to be right with God, to fulfill their mission, to be God's covenant race on earth, to ultimately bear the Messiah, to enjoy the fullness of what God has for them. And so, what might David's concerns nudge us about here? He challenges us to concern for God's kingdom and truth to integrity and to accountability. And so, you and I will obviously have our own contexts where we might be challenged about our integrity. And accountability goes with that, doesn't it? The people who David's describing here arrogantly say, we own our tongues. Who's our master? In verse 5, God is going to answer that question for them with his vow to arise. But might this perhaps challenge us too about areas of our lives, attitudes, ways of thinking that we struggle to let Jesus be Lord over? And so as well as bringing these things to God in prayer, hopefully, who do we have that we can be accountable to spiritually, that we can be vulnerable to about what we're going through, about where our failings are? As the people in this psalm blatantly refused to be, and as David finally was to Nathan. And what might David's opening cry about faithfulness to God cause us to think about? The Puritan writer Thomas Watson, in his book on the Lord's Prayer, gives us a few things to think about here. Firstly, he suggests that if our eyes are on God's coming kingdom while we navigate the problems of this life, we'll be reminded that none of these struggles are, in the end, eternal. The old King James Version, in its glorious medieval language, (coughs) excuse me, in its medieval language, um, talks about the verse where God promises to arise by saying, I will protect my people from they that puffeth at them. It's a glorious, slightly comical, old-fashioned word these days, but what does it tell us? The voices of this world rage and roar, but in the end, they're just like a puff of wind, and then they're gone. Secondly, Thomas Watson challenges us to be praying for God's kingdom of grace to increase in our own hearts. And by looking at that in the light of this psalm, can we look at the negative qualities that David sees on display here and perhaps examine ourselves a bit in the light of them? Be thinking about the difference, the converse qualities that Jesus wants us to have. 
Thirdly, of course, we pray for our nation as it seems to move further from the gospel, for God's word to take root in our communities as local churches work for God's kingdom. What David's showing us here is that it's perfectly legitimate to shout to God for help. We also pray, don't we, for the church that needs to be God's salt and light in this world to stay rooted in the truth. We remember the warning in 2 Timothy that Paul gives about rejection of sound doctrine. The late theologian Michael Ovey wrote an essay in which he talked about the church sometimes bowing down too much to contemporary opinion and sensibility, not just learning from past mistakes in the way that it sometimes needs to, by going too far to fit in. He called this a courtier spirit, so that the church becomes society's courtier rather than God's, as it should be. So as we go on to consider God arising in verse 5, if we remember when we looked at Isaiah a few weeks ago, we might remember what was said there by Margaret about the structure of Hebrew poetry, that the resolution is often in the middle, sandwiched in between the issues. The Psalms don't always obey this convention as some of them do end with the resolution. With the psalmist, be they David, one of the anonymous ones, or his worship leader Asaph, achieving the breakthrough that they need as in spite of everything they meet with God's assurance. But this psalm does, and its pivot point is here in verse 5, as God declares, I will arise. God arises because of the groanings of the weak and the needy. But what does that look like? It's not an instant political deliverance. Verse 8 shows us that. The wicked who strut about are still there. Humanity honouring what is vile, that's still there too. God can and often does as people turn back to him work miracles in transforming societies, resolving situations. It's there many times in the Bible. It's happened many times since then. But often what changes too is not the situation, but our ability to process it. And so, as the opposition here is deeper than just the physical, so too is God's protection, so too is his ability so too is the way he has of showing us that he is and always has been in control. And so in response to David's opening cry about the godly or the faithful one ceasing, scripture teaches us that God always preserves a remnant. In 1 Kings chapter 19, ironically straight after the victory on Mount Carmel, Elijah has fled, saying, it's over, kill me now, there's nobody left, it's just me. God meets with him, gives him that beautiful moment where he hears the still small voice, dusts him off, gets the ravens to bring him some lunch. And then Elijah complains that all have turned to Baal. 
Nobody's left. God gives him some new orders and tells him this. There's 7,000 preserved in Israel who have not turned to Baal, have not kissed him. Don't worry about this. And this is true throughout history. However much society or the church deviates from God's truth, God maintains a remnant that preserves it. Secondly, God's promise to set the oppressed in a place of safety has many facets too. Many Christians in persecuted countries, such as Asia Bibi, have received wonderful deliverance. We're thankful for that. It's an answer to prayer, just as it is for those members of our congregation who've been delivered to safety as well. But there's something deeper too. The message version puts it like this. I am on my way to heal the ache in the heart of the wretched. Other translations say, I will give them salvation, I will give them security. So this safety is deeper than just the physical. It's spiritual, even emotional, psychological. That in a world where truth feels like it's relative, that it's hard to find, hard to cling on to, God has saved us, preserved us forever, and showed us that our deepest needs are met in him. He is our confidence in all circumstances. He's our deepest truth, our assurance that reality is more than just this moment of struggle, more even than just this life. And if we come to him, trust in him as our saviour and Lord, that's his promise, that's his offer to all of us. Likewise, the message translates verse 8 as, Yahweh, keep us safe from their lies, from the wicked who stalk us with lies, who are honoured for their lies. Common catchphrases of our age are fake truth, alternative truth. The modern concept that truth is whatever we make it, whatever we want it to be. And so against this human insincerity, confusion, relativity, God sets the eternal truth of his word. And in this psalm, he tells us this. The words of the Lord are flawless, like silver, refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. Finally, and ultimately, of course, God arises in Jesus. In Jesus, God has reached out with eternal forgiveness and security, not just to those who have tried to follow him, but to those who have rejected him too, to the people in this psalm to you and I, as we were, and on bad days, sometimes can be. He's invited them to fellowship with him, and in the end, he preserves eternally, set in an eternal place of safety, those who take the lifeline that he's thrown them. And he fulfills perfectly and eternally what David wants to be in this psalm, but cannot be. David can't be the perfect leader who delivers his people here, but Jesus is. 
Also, next time you read Psalm 22, see how David begins with similar words of isolation and frustration. But this time, he's not just writing about his own troubles, he's foreshadowing Jesus in the hour of his death. Jesus endured the most intense isolation known to man, cut off even from God as he bore our sins on his shoulders. So God knows what David went through in Psalm 12. God knows what we go through too. And we remember too that just as David prays for his people in verse 3, So Jesus is now the perfect prayer warrior, the perfect intercessor, praying for us in heaven before the Father, giving us his strength and power by the Holy Spirit in us, believing in us to finish the race of faith that we've begun. And so all of this, I think, finally leaves us with two sets of choices. Firstly, do we feel David's frustration when society or whoever, some areas of the church world too, seem to care less about God's truth than about fitting in with modern culture? If we do feel that frustration here, and we should, And the emotion of poetry does invite us to feel it as well as just think it. We could just despair or think we have to roll with it. Or we can take it to God, ask him to assure us, give us wisdom to navigate it in the right way. And in that to feel the assurance of verse 5, that God is in control, that he's done so much for us, and will again arise as his people cry out in prayer. Secondly, we might be followers of Jesus here tonight, or we might not be yet. But this psalm gives us two sets of words. We have the unsustainable words of man, lost and confused, voices, peer pressures, saying one thing today, something else tomorrow, one day, gone forever. And then we have God's words, flawless, like refined silver, purified, enduring forever. So, which do we choose? Which do you and I trust in? Which will we listen to? This is ultimately a psalm about truth. And the choice here is between something that's transient, flawed, fallen, confused about what's right, and the words of a God who has made us in his image and redeemed us and has promised to set us in safety forever. That is the promise of this psalm for you and I. His word, his truth, is pure, sincere, true, eternally secure, 
And in the end, it's the only thing that is.